Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I am your host, Greg, and it is, uh, it is my birthday today. Uh, it's Tuesday, uh, like usual, uh, podcast fair, but it's my birthday, and uh, this is going to be a little bit shorter podcast because uh, I almost thought about not doing one, and I thought, no, I really like doing this, but uh, my little birthday present to myself is having a nice relaxing day without any like responsibilities. Not necessarily stress, but just not having any responsibilities, and I like not... Sometimes you know how it is, like you just want a day where it's not that you don't want to do anything, just that you don't want to plan anything. And then I can just choose kind of what I'm going to do in the moment. I don't have to like have everything planned out perfectly and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's how I relax. I know not everybody's that way, but that's how I relax. I relax with relieving myself of any sort of responsibilities. Um, but I love doing this and, and I didn't, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to, uh, pretend that I didn't. So, oh, and you know what? I realized I, I already, you know, I started this off. I was doing really good. And then I realized I did not, I did not, uh, pick my game of the week. What am I doing? What am I doing? Um, so let me, let me grab that real quick here. I almost missed it. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at my wall here. Let's see. We'll do this early on. I, I don't, I don't mind. It's no big deal. NBD. Um, we talked about Earthworm Jim last week. Yeah, you know, let's talk about this one. All right, so I got the game of the week picked out. That's easy peasy. We actually talked a little bit about it last week because of the Sega Genesis Mini coming out. But we'll talk more about it. And then, let's see. I have a user question I've been meaning to get to for a while from my boys at Suggestive Gaming. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's it's not a serious question anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think it was something about, uh, let me see here, let me see here, because I was asking for questions, and let's see, uh, so in the meantime though, uh, you talk a little bit about the story, you know, everything's going good, it, uh, it hasn't really, not really much has changed since we got that big NES collection in, uh, I'm going to be a guest on a podcast, or I, I was a guest on a podcast last week, I should say, um, so that was that was a uh, that was pretty cool actually. Um, you know, it's definitely a podcast you should check out. I'll put the info uh, down below. Um, come on, where's this thing? Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, oh here we go. Did I answer my question yet? All right, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Otherwise, it's been good. We got uh, the big news probably coming up is that we have our eight year store anniversary sale so it's it is really hard to believe sometimes that i've been doing this for eight years now you know like um i i worked at gamestop for 11 years left there to uh to open up my own store when i opened it it was like the worst economy ever to open a new business it was you know banks weren't lending anybody any money you couldn't even get a line of credit uh it was it was it was a it was a tough time to open a business um, but I had my, I had my system, you know, I felt like if you have good customer service and you have a good business plan, you'll be okay. And, uh, and it worked out for me. So eight, and that was eight years ago. It's really hard to believe I left GameStop eight years ago to open up, uh, you know, to open up my own store. Um, all right, here we go. I found the question. <laughs> it's a stupid question, but it's hard to believe like, like eight years ago, I never would have thought I am where I am now having a full staff, um, you know, and constantly doing more sales than we were the year before. Like, like I would have thought we would have peaked by now and, and growth would have slowed and we may have, you know, eat, leveled off a little bit, but we're not. And, um, 
and we just keep growing and like the inventory, the store is like an all time crazy level and it's just awesome. And, you know, it's, it's nice because there is this looming feeling of, and we'll talk a little bit about this with one of our stories today with the, um, the GameStop thing, but like, there's this looming issue of, <laughs> there's this looming issue of, you know, did I open a business that was DOA? when I started it, you know, and obviously we squeezed eight years out of it, which is, I think, fantastic. I think most businesses don't last that long. And if we could make it another eight years, I think it'd be incredible to, to have owned my own business for 16 years. I think that would be crazy. Um, but there's also a time where this isn't what I always plan to be doing my whole life either. And, and uh, I, I, I love video game retail, love what I do, but I've always, I've always had aspirations for other things. Um, I've never actually mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm, I'm actually writing a book. Uh, right now, I'm writing a, a fiction uh, novel, and uh, and uh, I, I've I've worked on a few video games in the past. I have friends that uh, we went to school. Uh, unfortunately, went to school at ITT Tech, <laughs> um, but I met some great people there, and we were all motivated to make a game. We made a couple games. Um, only one ever came out, and it's not good. So don't ask about it. I'll never tell you where to play it. In fact, it's uh it's no longer able to be played online. We had uploaded it to a free web portal. Um, I think the only way to play it now is if I log back into my MacBook and then re up like update the game like uh, with Unity. So I have to open it in Unity and then like update the game or something. But mm, mm, eh, I don't think I'm ever gonna do that. It's not even worth the word. The game sucks. Don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, that's always something. I, and so my buddy Jake and I right now have something going on where we, we've started back up uh, a project that, that was uh, dead for a long time. And, and so we're uh, we're trying it out. You know, we'll see. We're in very experimental phases right now. I don't know if anything will ever come of it, but, um, you know, maybe. And if it and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I guess the whole point was, you know, I always felt like I'd be doing something different, whether it's the YouTube channel, the commentary I'm doing now or, you know, finishing my book or, uh, you know, um, writing, uh, you know, finishing my game. And, and I've, I've always been an ideas guy. And, and unfortunately in this industry, that's not enough. Uh, you can't just be an ideas guy. You have to be an ideas guy or gal who is able to make those ideas at least in some form a reality so that someone else can take your vision and do the things that you can't do. But you can't just be like, man, I'm a really good storyteller. I could design a game. I mean, I can't program. I can't do any of this stuff. I can't do that stuff, but I could really think up good ideas. Like that's just not good enough. I'm sorry to say, you know, um, nobody's going to hire you just to have a good idea. Unfortunately, that that's something that they have lots of people. There's lots of idea men out there. Um, not, not to discourage people from making games. I actually think uh, everybody who wants to should, um, should at least try. And when the tools available now, when I started making games, it was Oh, 10 years ago or something. And the tools available 10 years ago were much different uh, than they are now. Like the engine we were using back then was this engine called Torque um, because it was a favorite of one of our instructors at, at ITT. And my God, it's awful. <laughs> the things you had to do just to add collision to a character model was insane compared to Unity where you literally click a box you click the item and then you click a checkbox that says add collision. I mean, you basically just add collision to something. It's so stupid how how, how much easier it's become. But that's a good thing. Uh, and there's also games like 2D uh, Game Maker, Studio Game Maker, stuff like that too. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, with that being said, there's two stories I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about GameStop and it uh, seemingly circling the drain. Uh, they had a really bad uh, uh, quarter call. Um, and it, it is, it's, it, it was not good news for them. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what all that means and what I think they might be doing in the future. 
And then a really interesting story came out about Bioware and Anthem. Now, Anthem, if you don't know, it's a, it's it's what we call a loot shooter. It's kind of like Destiny. It's kind of like um, you know games like that where it's a you know you play through a bit of a story and then eventually you're just grinding out enemies and instances looking for better loot. And but it's a sci-fi shooter. It's kind of cool. You get these like these uh, uh like armor suits, I guess you would say, uh, these javelins. And then you, you can like, like Iron Man, you kind of fly around the levels and stuff. It, the, the movement in combat was pretty cool. Um, I, I liked the, the demo I played, like I played the first few hours, uh, because I had it on EA access, but I, I mean, it didn't stick with me enough to play it. Uh, Jordan and Jeremy put some good time into it, but they both have massive complaints about it, but they did put the time in. Um, so we're gonna talk about those two stories and then uh, we'll get to the game of the week and then we'll do the listener question and then, and that'll be it. And that'll be the birthday. That'll be the birthday podcast for the day. So, um, with that being said, uh, let's start the show. So first up on the podcast today, we're going to be talking about Bioware and Anthem and what the hell happened? <laughs> because, and once again, you know, Jason Schreier at Kotaku, uh, he's in a great position right now. He's, he gets people to talk to him, um, albeit anonymously. Uh, he gets people to talk to him. And this this story was basically what happened with Anthem. And lately, he's been doing a lot of stories like this, where he's going after these games that seemingly had rocky launches. And he's talking to the people that worked on it, and the people that were previously there, and people that are currently still there to kind of get the story. And so the first paragraph alone is incredible. It wasn't even supposed to be called Anthem. <laughs> Just days before the annual E3 convention in June of 2017, when the storied studio Bioware would reveal its newest game, the plan had been to go with a different name, Beyond. They'd even printed out Beyond t-shirts for the staff. So right out the gate, the game was changed last minute. Now, why is that? Because apparently Electronic Arts word came down that securing the rights to the trademark would be too difficult. I understand. Um, there were obviously at that time there was Beyond Two Souls. There were other games, Echo Night Beyond. I mean, I know it's a stretch, but there were other games that maybe to get that name they were going to struggle with it. So they thought, just just make a new name that's not going to give us our legal team issues, which I think is is fair. It's something you have to consider, as annoying as it is. Um, we we've thought about that a lot <laughs> with the, the games we've worked on. So they they then went with. They switched to one of their backup options, which was Anthem. But whereas Beyond had been indicative of what Bioware hoped the game would be, you go beyond the walls of your fort and into the dangerous wilds around you, Anthem didn't really mean much. So that, I, I get you. You know, I could see where, and people who are working on a team, like you're working on a game for years, and you're like, this is the name of the game, and then you change it at the last minute. I mean, you know, that's... <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's tough. I think for even developers to be like, this isn't our game, but but okay, you know, it's and people calling it Anthem. There's probably people who worked on it for years who are just like, it's okay. I guess we'll call it Anthem, but to them it was a different thing, you know. Um. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna note a few. I don't want to read the whole article because there's a lot here. Um. But there's some there's some really interesting things here. So we're just gonna kind of pick out a few and and we'll talk about them as we go about. But uh, they one one anonymous source wanted to say quote everybody was like well that doesn't make any sense. What does this have to do with anything? Uh, <laughs> and so like they were just saying that anthem doesn't didn't mean anything to the vision of the game. Um, just so just days before the game's announcement, the team at Bioware had a brand new name that nobody really understood. Um, such a last-minute upheaval might seem strange to an outside observer, but on Anthem, it was common. Very few things went right in the development of Bioware's latest game, uh, which was first teased in mid-2012. So it had been in pre-production for 
many years before ramping up into full production, um, but spent years floundering in pre-production. Many features weren't finalized or implemented until the very final months, and to some who worked on the project, it wasn't even clear what kind of game Anthem was even until, uh, excuse me, what kind of game Anthem even was until that E3 demo came out in June of 2017, less than two years before it actually came out. Later, they came up with an explanation for the name. The game's planet was enveloped by something called the Anthem of Creation, a powerful, mysterious force left environmental cataclysms all over the world so they retro retro conned it um they retconned it uh when when anthem launched in february 2019 it was panned by fans and critics today it has a 55 on the review aggregate site metacritic which metacritic you take it and leave it whatever you want um the developer once known for ambitious role-playing titles like dragon age and the mass effect trilogy has now released two critical flops in a row following 2017's disappointing mass effect andromeda um yeah, I mean, I, I, that's fair to say. Um, although Andromeda was Bioware Edmonton. I don't think that's the core Bioware team. I don't think. I, I'm pretty sure that's like the, one of their offshoots. So like there's a little bit of forgiveness there. Um, but, you know, <laughs> they're not wrong. And, and we've seen this before. EA buys a studio. The game doesn't have a bunch of success. They close the studio down and just integrate everybody in. Like it'll no longer be called like Bioware. It'll be called... EA Canada or something, you know? Um, so, so this is, this is kind of the, the path that this is kind of a story we've heard many times before. Um, so a couple other things in here. Um, Although hardcore fans have put their faith in Bioware to continue fixing Anthem's bugs and improving its mechanics, especially since Bungie's Destiny, a similar game, had a rough launch and eventually recovered, few were happy with the initial release. Anthem wasn't just buggy and thin on content, it felt half-baked, like it hadn't been playtested and tweaked enough by developers and experienced players uh, experience playing other loot shooters. In the weeks after launch, there appeared to be a major new problem every day. Um, then that's that's trouble development. That's kind of what happens. And it's not necessarily about not having issues. I think any game developer is going to tell you that there there's always an issue or a problem. It's how you handle and deal with those problems. Um, so this account of Anthem's development is based on interviews with 19 people who either worked on the game or adjacent to it. Um, all were granted on uh, anonymity because they were not authorized to talk about Anthem's development. So obviously NDAs or, you know, what else they have going on. It's also kind of a company policy. You don't typically say stuff like this to the press, not saying that they shouldn't, um, but they, you know, it, it, it's something that it's, it's not, it's not a good look for the company. So of course they're going to not want you to do it. Um, uh, apparently EA's Frostbite engine continued to make life miserable for many of Bioware's developers. Frostbite is basically the universal engine that EA uses now, and it's great apparently for scale scalability. So p they liked it during the um, the hardware transition. So from PS3 to PS4, they could make the same game and then scale it down for PS3 specs, scale it up for PS4 specs. And so it was good for scaling, but apparently, and, and good for shooters, not apparently great for massively online games and for RPGs. Um, uh, an understaffed department struggled to serve the team's needs. It's a story of two studios, one in Edmonton, Canada, and another in Austin, Texas, that grew resentful towards one another thanks to a tense, lopsided relationship. It's a story of a video game that was in development for nearly seven years but didn't enter production until the final 18 months thanks to big narrative reboots, major design overhauls, and a leadership team that was unable to provide a consistent vis a vision and unwilling to listen to feedback. Um, 
it, perhaps most alarming, it's a story about a studio in crisis. Dozens of developers, many of them decade-long veterans, have left BioWare over the past two years. Some who have worked at BioWare's longest-running office in Edmonton talk about depression and anxiety. Many say that their co-workers had to take stress leave, a doctor-mandated period of weeks or even months worth of vacation for their mental health. One former BioWare developer told me they would frequently find a private room in the office, shut the door, and just cry. Ugh. Uh, people were so angry and sad all the time, they said. Uh, said another, depression and anxiety are an epidemic within Bioware. Um, yeah, obviously that's not good. Morale is very important. Uh, and that's kind of a middle management thing. You know, you have to... You know, I know I worked as a manage, as manager and owner on a much smaller scale than something like this, but management and ownership isn't much different no matter where you go. You don't make your people try to work for the vision of the game or to try to make them work for the company. You make them work for you. And so the middle management should have, I feel like, I feel like issues like this, morale issues, are a middle management problem. You, you clearly have somebody there who, and maybe they're stressed out and they can't, pass that off you know to somebody else but it's it's uh it's definitely a failure of the company and not saying that the job shouldn't be stressful everybody's job is stressful we've all had it if you work at pizza hut you have to work the super bowl it's probably one of the worst days of your life if you work retail you have black friday it's one of the worst days of your life um i had all those nes games came in i put in back-to-back 15-hour days it was stressful i ached afterwards it's fine we all have that though and so we shouldn't just look at this and say like you know, and people seeing they need mental health breaks, like we've known about that in the game industry for a long time. It's incredibly stressful. Um, it's an industry that a lot of people want to break into, so you never feel like you have a ton of job security. And people are more than willing to to work those crazy hours to fulfill their dream. And and so, and companies take advantage of that. When I, I mean, I know it's a different, again, a different scale. But when I worked at GameStop, um, you know, I was the type of manager that would do anything. So I was working 60, 70 hours a week because I would drive four hours to an inventory and then I would drive, you know, oh, this store's manager's sick, so I gotta go cover this store for a day so it doesn't ding their payroll or 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 oh I gotta go do an audit on this store or something, you know? Or oh we have a work meeting and you don't get paid for the drive down even though the meeting's three or four hours away, so I still have to work a full another day in my store just to take a day off to go to a meeting, you know? Like it's stupid stuff like that. And and they were they they were allowed to get away with that because we all loved our jobs so much and we were willing to take the abuse. And so I'm not saying it's a good thing that this happens by any stretch but there is a certain responsibility from the employee that, you know, if, and I'm not saying like, if you don't like it, you should just quit. I don't mean that, but this, this is kind of a known in this industry and it, it isn't for everybody. And I totally understand though, that this is like, especially like, I mean, if, if it's that bad where people are taking massive amounts of stress leave now, one way I look at this too, you think about stress leave, it's probably because they were on vacation blackout during crunch. So I think it'd be easy to go to a doctor and say, I'm having a mental breakdown. And then they write you a doctor's note saying, well, you have to take three weeks off for a mental, you know, stress leave. And then of course uh, the company has to do it because it's a medical concern. You know, it's, it's just like saying I have to have my appendix out. I can't come to work tomorrow. You know, it's, it, that's basically, so, so I, I don't want to say like, like stress that, that doesn't like kill me too much because that, that to me is something that's like, that's like a workaround for not being able to take days off, you know, and, and you shouldn't have to do that again, but it is kind of what it is. Um, this, uh, this, uh, person said, quote, I actually cannot count the amount of stress casualties we had on Mass Effect Andromeda or Anthem, said a third former Bioware developer in an email. A stress casualty at Bioware means someone had such a mental breakdown from the stress that they're just gone for one to three months 
and some don't come back. <laughs> I mean, that's not good. Obviously, a morale issue more than anything. I totally agree with that. Um, because I think you can work crunch, and I think you can work crazy hours, and I think you can still be okay with that. But if the crunch and crazy hours is causing you to have mental breakdowns and have to cry in an office, then that's a morale issue. Then that means your your middle management is not taking care of you, basically. Um, so, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I want to. Okay, so th this one. Um, uh, many at the company now grumble that the success of 2014's Dragon Age Inquisition was one of the worst things that could have happened to them. The third Dragon Age, which won Game of the Year in 2014, which I actually didn't really like Inquisition, but that's okay, um, was the result of a brutal production process plagued by indecision and technical challenges. It was mostly built over the course of its final year. You're starting to see a pattern here, right? Like, everything seems to be, like, finishing over the last year. Mass Effect Andromeda, uh, Dragon Age, and Anthem. Like, these are all... Bioware games. So this is, you know, and, and so they go on to say, quote, some of the people in Edmonton were so burnt out, said one former Bioware developer, they were like, we needed Dragon Age Inquisition to fail in order for people to realize that this isn't the right way to make games. That's also very sad that they almost wanted the game to fail so that they could reimagine how they're doing things. Uh, within the studio, there's a term called Bioware magic. It's a belief that no matter how rough a game's production might be, things will always come together in the final months. The game will always coalesce it happened on Mass Effect Trilogy, on Dragon Age Origins, and on Inquisition. Veteran Bioware developers like to refer to production as a hockey stick. It's flat for a while, and then suddenly it jolts upward. Even when a project feels like a complete disaster, there's a belief that with enough hard work and enough difficult crunch, it'll all come together. So I, I hear that, and I go, that's actually pretty interesting. That's pretty neat that they had this. But I think what we're learning now is that sort of magic worked when you had a much smaller team and a much smaller game. You basically fumble around trying to figure out what's where the fun is, and then eventually you get to the fun. I don't think you can really pull that anymore. Not with a, not with multiple studios across multiple you know teams. Um, you know a huge company with deadlines over the top. You just don't have that same sort of environment to do that. And and so uh, you know the Bioware magic I think is is neat, and I think that's a neat thing to have like this mysticism around your company. Like we're known to get it done. We will get it done. People take pride in that, and and I I totally understand that. You know that's kind of how I manage too. Like I have an expectation that things will get done, and we always seem to get it done. Uh, and but uh, that was also different uh, a different time when they were able to pull all these things off so i don't think you can rely on the bioware magic anymore especially when you keep losing all the people that essentially brought that magic to life i really believe that so uh so the bioware magic uh is um probably was a real thing i i don't think it's really a thing anymore although i mean i hate to say but look at anthem it technically came out a completely new type of game you know all these issues and it still launched in a pretty playable state i mean you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, like, the Bioware magic was there, but, whew, yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, let's see. Uh, at the beginning, they called the game Dylan. In late 2012 and 2013, while finishing up the Mass Effect trilogy, Bioware director Casey Hudson and a small team of longtime Mass Effect developers started work on a project that they hoped would be the Bob Dylan of video games, meaning something that would be referenced by video game fans for years to come. Even within Bioware, it was a mystery project. You needed a password to get into the wiki, according to one person who was on it. For a while, the team stayed small. Most of Bioware staff were on Dragon Age Inquisition, which needed all hands on deck in order to ship by the end of 2014. So they couldn't really ramp up production of Anthem because they were in their crazy crunch mode of for uh, for Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, the early ideas for Dylan, which we're going to start calling Anthem again just to avoid confusion, and like the article says, 
were ambitious and changing constantly, according to people who were on the project. As it as is typical during this sort of idea, uh, ideation phase, nobody knew what the game would look like yet. They just wanted to see what might be cool. It would be an action game, certainly, and you'd be able to play it with your friends. The goal was to get away with the traditional sci-fi and fantasy, so the game would feel distinct from Mass Effect and Dragon Age. One concept that quickly emerged was the idea of a dangerous, hazard-filled planet. Anthem would be set on a hostile alien world, and in order to get into the wilderness, you need a robot suit, a realistic NASA-inspired robot suit. The pitch was simple, Iron Man, but less cartoony. Okay, good pitch. Understand why it got greenlit. <laughs> um, so, uh, let's see. Um, I want to go through a scroll a little bit more because there's some stuff where they talk about... Uh, Anthem was always envisioned as an online multiplayer game, according to developers who worked on it, but it was always a... But it wasn't always a loot shooter, the kind of game where you'd endlessly grind missions for new weapons. In these early versions, the idea was that you'd embark from a city and go out on expeditions with your friends, staying out in the world as long as you could survive. You'd use a robotic exosuit and you'd fight monsters with melee and shooting attacks. But the focus was less on hoarding loot and more on seeing how long you could survive. Which actually, in, in the survival games we have out now, like that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Probably would have done really well. Uh, one mission, for example, might take you and your squad to a center of a volcano where you have to figure out why it's erupting. Kill some creatures and then fight your way back. That was the main hook, said an Anthem developer. We're going out as a team, going to try to accomplish something as a team, then come back and talk about it. Along the way, you could scavenge or salvage alien ships for parts and bring them back to your base in order in order to upgrade your weapons and enhance your suit. So it's almost like um, it's almost like a bit of Monster Hunter, to be honest. Uh, imagine going out and then doing a mission, and then when you're done with the missions, you salvage. Uh, you know, equipment that you would use to uh, increase your weapons and your armor. Like, that's straight up Macho Hunter. I actually think that, that sounds pretty rad, actually. Uh, to, to quote my, my good buddy Jordan, that sounds pretty rad. Um, it was really interesting, said one person who worked on it. It really struck a chord with a lot of people who were working on it originally. What remained unclear during this process was how many of these ideas and prototypes would actually work at scale. Dynamic environments and giant creatures might perform nicely in a controlled environment. But would the Anthem team really be able to make those features work in an online open world game played by thousands and thousands of people? And would Frostbite, the volatile game engine that Bioware was now using for all of its projects, really support all of these features? As these questions lingered, the Anthem team faced a major shakeup. In August of 2014, as they continued to prototype and dream about their game, they lost their leader, Casey Hudson, who had directed the beloved Mass Effect trilogy and was supposed to be creative director on Anthem. Um... The foundation of our new IP in Edmonton is complete, he wrote in a letter to the studio, and the team is ready to move forward into pre-production on a title that I think will redefine interactive entertainment. Uh, John Warner, a relatively new hire who had worked for Disney before joining EA, took on the role of game director. Uh, so then... Uh, Bioware veterans like to describe Casey Hudson's Mass Effect team as the Enterprise from Star Trek. They did all, they did what the captain said, and they were all laser focused on a single destination. By comparison, they called the Dragon Age team a pirate ship, meandering from port to port until it reached its final destination. <laughs> so, it's not a, that's not good. <laughs> Uh, still, members of the Anthem team say they remained happy. Dragon Age Inquisition shipped at the end of 2014 to critical acclaim, and many of those developers moved over to Anthem, where they found a team full of high hopes and ambitious ideas. EA had all these team health reports, said one. Anthem's morale was among the highest in all of EA. It was really, really good for quite a while. Everybody there saw so much potential in these early prototypes. Potential was always the word there. And I know this is something, even GameStop did this. They have, like, internal surveys, but they have team health reports where they basically have an anonymous survey saying like, what team are you on? Are you happy? What can we do to improve it? And then they, that that's how they try to like, like 
cultivate their culture um, of, of the teams they want to have. <clears throat> but uh, let's see. Uh, one Bioware developer who hadn't yet moved to the Anthem team recalled hearing those colleagues talk about how much better they had it than the people who were stuck on Mass Effect Andromeda, which at the time was going through serious struggles thanks to technical challenge and significant direction changes. Surely they thought that couldn't happen to Anthem. We took so much time to get the experience correct. I think that I think that's why morale was so high. I knew we had taken the time to really refine what we wanted the game to be about. Now we just had to go and produce it. So they're saying that the pre-production was a lot longer, but it resulted in a clear vision of what they wanted. So like everything right now doesn't sound too bad. Like we're, we're fine. We're fine. We're, we're, we're getting through it. Everybody. It's no problem. Um, so question was, how would they do that? As development progressed, it became clear that some of Anthem's team's original ideas either wouldn't work or weren't quite solidified enough to be implemented. Take Traversal, for example. The mandate was that Anthem's world would be massive and seamless, but how would that? How would you get around? The team played around with prototypes exploring different ways in which your exosuit could move vertically across the world. For a long time, they thought it'd be climbing up the sides of mountains and ledges, but they couldn't get that quite right. Early iterations of flying, which developers say was removed and then re-added to Anthem several times, which we'll get to more later were more like gliding and members of the anthem team say it was rough to get the system feeling all that fun every time they changed the traversal it meant changing the world design accordingly flattening and stretching terrain to accommodate the latest movement cycle or style excuse me there were experiments with procedural encounters where dynamic creatures environment hazards would spawn randomly from the world but those weren't working too smoothly either that took a long time said one developer the game was super reliant on this procedural system that just wasn't fun and it's funny because I talk about that a lot with games is you can have all these ideas that sound fun, but until you actually play it and tweak it, like game design is, there, there's a lot to game design. It's not as simple as having a side-scrolling level like Mario, putting your character on the screen and putting some enemies on there and having you get from start to finish. Like there's so much more than that. There's a flow of gameplay and there's, there's a design aspect to it that I think a lot of people overlook. And that's why you can't just be an idea person either. When you, when you try to make games, you have to be like, you have to understand what makes games fun you have to understand why they, what makes them tick you know you can't just look at it and say oh well mario's a fun game let's make a game like mario it doesn't really work that way um okay so uh another big one here so this uh the story started changing drastically too in early 2015 veteran dragon age writer david gator moved over david gator moved over to anthem and his version of the story looked a lot different than the ideas in which they'd been experimenting for over the past few years gator's style was traditional bioware big complicated villains ancient alien artifacts and so on which rankled some of the developers who were hoping for something more subtle there was a lot of resistance from the team who just didn't want to see a sci-fi dragon age uh added a second note quote a lot of people were like why are they telling the same story let's do something different so they felt like this writer was doing the same thing when asked to comment on this gator said in an email that when he'd started on the project anthem design director preston uh well his name i can't pronounce uh, what I'm sorry, I butchered that. I apologize. So Preston had pushed him in a science fantasy direction, which was he was fine with that as fantasy is more his comfort zone anyway. But it was clear from the outset that there was a lot of opposition to the change from the rest of the team. Maybe they assumed the idea came from me. I'm not sure, but comments like it's very Dragon Age kept coming up regarding any of the work me or my team did and not in a 
complimentary manner. <laughs> there were a lot of people who wanted to say over Anthem's story and kept articulating a desire to do something different without really being clear on what the outside of it just not being anything Bioware had not done before, which was apparently a bad thing. From my perspective, it was rather frustrating. Gator left Bioware in early 2016. As time passed, I didn't feel keen to play the game that I was working on, he told uh, the Kotaku writer, Jason Schreier, which led to new writers for Anthem and a total story reboot. So this is early 2016. They have a story laid out by one of their writers. That writer leaves. Let's just do a total story reboot. This led to even more chaos. As you can imagine, writing for Bioware sets the foundation for all the games, said one developer. When writing is unsure of what it's doing, it causes a lot of destruction to a lot of departments. I think that's that's. I think Bioware, it's fair to say it starts with the writing. I think that's fair. Um, let's see. So here, here's, here's a big one. Quote, they never seem to settle on anything. They were always looking... This is the management. They were always looking for something more something new said another i think most people on team felt like we didn't know exactly what the game was or what it was supposed to be because they kept changing it so much the most common anecdote rely uh, relayed to me by current and former bioware employees was this a group of big developers are in a meeting they're debating some creative decision like the mechanics of flying or the lore behind the scar alien race some people disagree on the fundamentals and then rather than someone stepping up and making a decision about how to proceed the meeting would end with no real verdict leaving everybody in flux this would happen over uh, this would just happen over and over said one anthem developer stuff would take a year or two to figure out because no one really wanted to make a call on it Keep in mind, said another Anthem developer, everyone had hard decisions to make uh, that we've never had to make before. New IP, new genre, new technology, new style, everything was new, end quote. That, that's wild to me, though. So they're in meetings. Imagine you're sitting in a meeting and you go, okay, let's talk about the lore. We want the Scar alien race to look like this and be like this and do this. Another person goes, ah, I don't like that. I think we should do this. Then a third person goes, ah, I definitely see what you guys are saying. What if we did it this way? And then after some commenting and arguing, they're like, all right, well, our meeting's over. Let's, let's head back to our desks. And there's nothing resolved. And, and I, 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 don't, I don't know how you get, get away with stuff like that. I don't know how you do that. But it is, uh, it is a thing. And that's what happened with this game. So clearly part of the issue with Anthem's development was, was a, now you've got a lack of upper management. You've got a lack of leadership here. When they're not even, they don't even know what the game's going to be. And if they don't know what the game's going to be, how do they pass it along to all the teams? It was very compartmentalized. And I think that's why the game ends up feeling so like jagged, like why some things work really well. And some things just seem like totally boggling of the mind, uh, you know, <laughs> because there's some like classic Bioware stuff there where you have to talk to all the people in the town after every so many missions. So you can like build a rapport with them. That's very similar to the, the ship in mass effect or the, the campfires in dragon age. Like, you know, it's very similar to those, but you know, this one has like a, a town where, you know, and then, and then you, you walk around in first person and you have to pick up like lore units from the, and then you walk slow. Like, and it's all so weird. Um, so uh, complicating these problems further was the fact that sometimes when the Anthem leadership team did make a decision, it would take weeks or even months for them to see it in action. There were a lot of plans, said a developer, where by the time they were implemented, it was a year later and the game had evolved. The explanation for this lag can be summed up in one word, a word that has plagued many of EA Studios for years, most notably Bioware and now defunct Visceral Games, a word that could still evoke a mocking smile or sad grimace from anyone who's ever spent any time with it. The word, of course, is frostbite. So again, that's the game engine that EA uses for all of their games. So frostbite. Um, quote, frostbite is full of razor blades. End quote. One former Bioware uh, employee told me a few weeks ago, aptly summing up the feelings of perhaps hundreds of game developers who have worked at Electronic Arts over the past few years. 
Frostbite is a video game engine or a suite of technology that is used to make a game. Created by EA-owned Swedish studio DICE, in order to make battlefield shooters, the Frostbite engine became ubiquitous across electronic arts this past decade thanks to an initiative led by former executive Patrick Soderlund to get all of the studios on the same technology, which it makes sense to me, though, right? So, like, you, you want all your studios using the same technology. You can have an internal, like, engine team that they call for tech support. You don't have to call Epic. You don't have to pay licensing fees. You know, like, it makes sense if it makes sense, you know? <laughs> it makes sense if the engine works. Um, as it turned out, Anthem was not the charm. Using Frostbite to build an online-only action game, which Bioware had never done before, led to a host of new problems for Bioware's designers, artists, and programmers. Frostbite is like an in-house engine with all the problems that entails. It's poorly documented, hacked together, and so on, with all the problems of an externally sourced engine. So it has all the <laughs> negatives of an internal engine and all the negatives of an external engine. So it really doesn't work well for anyone. Um, nobody actually worked, uh, nobody you actually work with designed it. So you don't know why this thing works the way it does, which is why it's named the way it is. <laughs> um, throughout those early years of development, the Anthem team realized that many of the ideas they originally conceived would be difficult, if not impossible to create in Frostbite. The engine allowed them to build big, beautiful levels, but it wasn't, it just wasn't equipped with the tools to support all those ambitious prototypes that they'd created. Slowly and gradually, they started cutting back on the environmental and survival features that they devised for Anthem, in large part because they just weren't working. Part of the trouble was you could do enough in the engine to hack it to show that it was possible, but then to get the investment behind it to get it actually done took a bit longer, and in some cases, you'd run into a brick wall. Then you'd realize, oh my god, we can do this only if we reinvent the wheel, which is going to take too long. It was sometimes difficult to know when to cut and run. And so a little bit of this is a little mind-boggling to me because they had been using frostbite and they were going to be using frostbite so i feel like if you're going to develop a prototype game in that engine i mean i understand that when you're building a prototype you don't scale it but if you're going to make a game that's going to be huge you yeah you can't just make a one level thing and be like oh yeah flying's really fun here you really have to figure it out like that i think is a little more pre-planning which again is a failure of of upper management i think um uh, you know so it just goes on there's like a million stories like this and i don't want to just read this to you non-stop but uh after four years in the end of 2016, Anthem had been in some sort of pre-production for, uh, at this time, in a more typical video game development cycle, it would have entered production, the point in a project when the team has a full vision of what they're making and can actually start building out the game. So we're like, okay, finally, we're into, like, production, we got the idea, we're going to start working on it. Uh, some of who were working on Anthem say they started to feel like they were in trouble, like the game was screwed, <laughs> that they would soon have to face the same sort of last-minute production crunch that their co-workers were suffering on Mass Effect Andromeda. Yet word came down from leadership that everything would work out. It was time for Bioware magic. There's that word again. Uh, you had to throw your prior knowledge out and go in on blind faith or just hope that you were going to turn out well, said one person. A lot of the veterans, guys who had only ever worked at Bioware, they said, everything's going to be fine in the end. It was really hard on people who couldn't just go on blind faith, I suppose. And then, uh, so there's that Bioware magic again. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about... Um... Uh, th there's two more things I want to talk about. One is this comparison to Destiny. Uh, a few people who worked on the game said that trying to make comparisons to Destiny would elicit negative reactions from studio leadership. Quote, we were told quite definitively, this isn't Destiny, end quote. 
But it kind of is. What you're describing is beginning to go into that realm. They didn't want to make those correlations. But at the same time, when you're talking about fire teams going off and doing raids together, about gun combat, spells, things like that, there's a lot of elements there that correlate and that cross over. Because leadership didn't want to discuss Destiny, the developer added, they found it hard to learn from what Bungie's loot shooter did well. We need to be looking at games like Destiny because they're the market leaders, the developer said. They're the guys who have been doing these things best. We should absolutely be looking at how they're doing things. I would agree with that. As an example, the developer brought up the unique feel of Destiny's large variety of guns, something that Anthem seemed to be lacking, in large part because it was being built by a bunch of people who had mostly made RPGs. <laughs> we really didn't have the design skill to be able to do that, they said. There just wasn't the knowledge base to be able to develop that kind of diversity. So there's that. And then lastly, um, okay, so th this, I want to see, because they talk about when they, they gave the demo. Okay, yeah, this is it. Okay, so I'm going to go through this, and this is the last thing we'll talk about. It. Um, one longstanding Bioware tradition is for their teams to build demos that the staff could all take home during Christmas break, and it was Anthem's turn during Christmas of 2016. By this point, Bioware's leadership had decided to remove flying from the game. <laughs> <laughs> which as you know now is like the main selling point. They just couldn't figure out how to make it feel good. So the question, so the Christmas build took place on flat terrain. You'd run through a farm, shoot some aliens. Some on the team thought it was successful as a proof of concept, but others at Bioware felt thought or said it felt dull and looked mundane. In the beginning of 2017, a few important things happened. In early March, Mass Effect Andromeda launched, freeing up the bulk of Bioware staff to join Anthem, including most of Bioware's Austin office. The Montreal office began to quietly wind down and eventually closed, leaving Bioware as two entries rather than three. So I did make a mistake in the beginning. I do want to correct that. Edmonton is the original Bioware. Austin seems to be the 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 new Bioware. So I, I apologize. I had the two mixed up. I, I got my wires crossed. So I'm sorry about that to fix that. Um... Around the same time, Electronic Arts executive Patrick Soderlund, to whom Bioware's leadership reported, played the Anthem Christmas demo. According to three people familiar with what happened, he told Bioware that it was unacceptable. Soderlund did not respond to a request for comment. He was particularly disappointed by the graphics. He said, this is not what you promised me as a game, said one person who was there. <laughs> that's that's harsh when your boss like kills you, you know? Um then those developers said Soderlund summoned a group of high-level Bioware staff to fly out to Stockholm, Sweden, and meet with developers at DICE, the studio behind Battlefield and Frostbite. DICE would later bring in a strike team to help Bioware work out the Frostbite kinks and make Anthem look prettier. Now, it was, and, and what's funny, I didn't get to it in here, but earlier in the article, there was a, a thing about how there's an internal team that basically helps you with engine issues with Frostbite. And that team is so focused heavily on the games that make more money. So they're always like FIFA and they're always talking about other games. So it's really difficult and it takes time to get back on a project, especially one that was in pre-production like Anthem. So people are like, oh yeah, that's low on the chain compared to the, you know, the, it's, it's low on the chain compared to the FIFA bugs I got to fix today. And, and so that was another thing. Um, so... Uh, now is the time for a new build. What began was six weeks of pretty significant crunch to do a demo specifically for Patrick Soderlund. So now they're working their butts off for six weeks straight just to make a better demo for, uh, for the executive. Uh, they overhauled the art knowing that the best way to impress Soderlund would be to make a demo that looked as pretty as possible. And after some heated arguments, the Anthem team decided to put flying back in. Okay. So heated debate to get flying back in. Um, for years, the Anthem team had, gone, team had gone back and forth about the flying mechanic. It had been cut and re-added several times in different forms. Some iterations were more of a glide, and for a while, the idea was that only one exosuit class would be able to fly. Uh, on one hand, the mechanic was undeniably cool. 
What better way to feel like Iron Man than to zip around the world in a giant robot suit? On the other hand, it kept breaking everything. Few open world games allowed for that kind of vertical freedom. And for good reasons. If you could fly everywhere, then the entire world needed to accommodate that. The artists wouldn't be able to throw up mountains or walls to prevent players from jumping off of boundaries of the planets. Plus, the Anthem team worried that if you could fly, you'd blaze past the game's environments rather than stopping to explore and check out the scenery. Which, I do agree with that. That's always why in World of Warcraft, they do the same thing. They don't give you flying mount access right away. You always have to earn it through the game. Which I always find obnoxious. Like, yes, it'll, it slows you down, but I think in an arbitrary way. I think you can do good game design that would make people explore those areas. Then that means you have to fill these areas with things. You can't just have 90% of it be empty and then 10% of it have things so that people skip 90% of the environment. Um, so the leadership's team most recent decision had been to remove flying entirely but they needed to impress Soderlund and flying was the only mechanic they'd built that made Anthem stand out from other games so they eventually decided to put it back this re-implementation of flying took place over a weekend according to two people who worked on the game and it wasn't quite clear whether they were doing it permanently or just a show for Soderlund we were like well it's not in the game are we adding it for real <laughs> said one developer they were like we'll see <laughs> it, basically they were building a demo just to make the executive happy to keep their jobs uh so one day in the spring of 2017 okay this is 2017 now this is two years ago Soderlund flew to Edmonton and made his way to Bioware offices entourage in tow the Anthem team had completely overhauled the art and re-added flying which they hoped would make some uh sufficiently impressive but tensions were high in the wake of the last demo's disappointment and Mass Effect Andromeda's high profile failure Ugh. Uh, there was no way to know what might happen if Soderlund again disapproved of the demo. What uh, Would the project get canceled? Would Bioware be in trouble? Quote, one of the QA people had been playing it over and over again so they could get the flow and timing down perfectly, said one person who was involved. Within 30 seconds or so, the Exo jumps off and glides off this precipice and lands. Then, according to two people who were in the room, Patrick Soderlund was stunned. Quote, he turns around and goes... That was effing awesome. <laughs> Show it to me again, said one person who was there. He was like, that was amazing. It's exactly what I wanted. So now that's all I'm going to quote about the article because the whole thing is just more of this. There's a whole bunch more. Read it, please. It's very good. Uh, Kotaku article, Jason Schreier. Very, very good. But this is one of those interesting things where, you know, we always talk about, right, how the EA, EA brass steps in and they're trying to change the game. Like was Anthem, um, going to be a, a non microtransaction game? Was it going to be, this was gonna be that. And then EA executive stepped in and said, we got to make money. Here we go. Here's a case of a game that was boned. I mean, I think it's fair to say this game had no chance and because of him hating it, they retooled it in such a way that actually impressed him enough. Like essentially Patrick Soderlund's the reason why Anthem is is the way it is today <laughs> so it's it's very weird you know when you talk about executives and usually the corporate suits stepping in and ruining things sometimes they have visions and sometimes they know what the every man wants or the every woman wants and so it changed the game for the better to have him basically take a big crap on it <laughs> so so there's always that um so again read the article it's very good um and then this was coincidentally uh, timed with another jason trier article that came out recently about uh, the game industry needing to unionize, I think it was in the New York Times. Um, I'm not going to cover that here today, but I, I think what we have to understand, and this will be the last thing I say about this, but one incredible story. I love I love behind the curtain. Um, you know, video games are fun. It's fun to play them, but it's also, in my opinion, it's fun to see behind the inner workings. And I, I love I love seeing the, the uh, what do I want to say? Like, I love seeing the weird, you know, and like the, the crazy stuff behind it. Um, and, and I thought this um, would uh, would just be a really interesting story to see kind of what's going on, uh, you know, behind the curve. 
Um, so yeah, uh, so this video is taking way longer than I thought it would. Um, but the last thing I would say is about the about the unionization. I'm not opposed to unions at all. I just think that it's it's not there's it's not going to be something like this the like the uh, film actors uh, guild and there's not going like, to like the screen actors guild. I'm sorry. The, the um, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like um, like movie film uh, actors and it's not going to be like voice actors that are in like these guilds. It's not like that because there isn't one entity that's going to wrap them all together. Not saying that they couldn't, but it's difficult to do in this industry, especially an industry that has, that's going to be starting it from scratch. Unions are very difficult to get off the ground because you have to get everyone to sign on or only the people that sign on get kind of the short end of the stick. So, um, so with, uh, you know, so when you talk about unions though, it's just not as easy as saying, well, they should be in a union like they're yes, but, um, we need to like, they need to take steps to do that. You can't just like declare it and have it happen. Like it, it's, it's a difficult process to start. And as much as I'd love to see it, I just don't think we can just throw out headlines. Like they need to unionize. You know, why don't, well, the article's saying that, like, if you know how, why don't you tell them how, why don't you help? Why don't we start an organization? What, where is the union, where, where is like a video game union organizers that people can start joining or something, you know, um, where they, they start, um, you know, calling for better contracts for, for workers and, and better hours and, and stuff like that. You know, it, that's not happening. People are, are willing to complain that there aren't unions, but no one seems to be starting up the idea to get the union started. Man, that went on way too long. <laughs> I didn't want a Bioware conversation to go on that long, but it's fine uh, because we still got to talk about GameStop, which uh, is 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 an interesting one. So we'll talk a little about that, and then I guess this podcast won't be shorter than the usual ones because uh, we talked about Anthem for a half hour, which I was not expecting, and uh, I don't know where the time goes. Uh, and then I will be talking about GameStop here. So let's get to part two, <clears throat> and uh, and uh, and uh, let's see. Uh, here we go. So second on the podcast today, and lastly, I suppose, we're going to be talking about GameStop. And uh, they're not doing great. I won't, I won't lie. I won't try to sugarcoat this. Um, they had some, some terrible... Uh, they've had a, a terrible uh, quarter. Um, they basically... Well, a terrible year. Um, let's kind of go through this. Uh, I'm going to do the... Uh, like this. Let's see. Um, so he, here was kind of the headline that grabbed my attention. The GameStop is sinking after the company said it won't issue annual earnings guidance. Um, GameStop shares plunged 13% uh, in pre-market trading on Wednesday after the company's fourth quarter earnings results fell short of analysis estimates the evening prior. GameStop also said it will not offer annual earnings per share guidance to investors. Given the planned cost savings and profit imp uh, improvement initiative and the announcement of a new CEO starting on April 15th, which couldn't come any sooner. <laughs> the company is not providing annual earnings per share guidance at this time. The company said in a release, here's what GameStop reported compared with the analysis surveyed by Bloomberg. So uh, they had, so GameStop, again, these are the two numbers. This is what GameStop, um, this is what they reported versus what the analyst was. So they reported 1.45 in adjusted earnings per share EPS versus the analysts said 1.58 so that was down revenue was supposed to be 3.1 billion versus 3.27 billion which was the estimate so they missed that estimate comparable sales um comparable sales are commonly known as comps that is compared to last year they were plus 1.4 percent so they were actually up over the previous year uh and the um uh the analysts had sur uh, surveyed at a negative two percent so they actually beat 
the analysts on that one. So uh, the article goes on to say, on Monday, GameStop announced an agreement with two activist investors, Hestia Corporate uh, Capital Partners and Permit Capital Enterprise that would add two new independent investors to its board. The report comes as the company shares trade near the lowest level since 2005, having crashed earlier after GameStop's board earlier this year terminated plans to sell the company which they tried to sell it and no one who wanted to buy it could get the banks to support what they were claiming it was worth the texas-based consumer electronics chain has struggled to stay relevant in a changing gamer landscape gamestop has fallen 20 percent this year through tuesday's market close that is brutal um man and it's this is a, a unbelievable you know you look at 8.78 when i left gamestop um so i i actually had stock options when i was there and when i left i only had so much time to cash in those stock options before i lost them and i want to say my stock options were at i think 14 dollars a share and i kid you not it like surged the the week or two before i cashed them in up to like 30 dollars a share and i was able to cash them all out and make some money on it which was awesome and I think about that sometimes. And I remember when they were at 15 or 20, I was like, man, this really sucks. And it would slowly creep up a little bit. And then, um, and now I see it here below 10. I mean, that's, that's wild to me. Let's, let's, let's do an active, uh, an active look on it here. So, um, well, that's not what we wanted. Do this on the fly, baby. Um, yeah. So, I mean, here it is, I guess I would like to kind of blow this up a little bit. So they're at nine at as of 11 AM, they're at $9 and 91 cents per share. I mean, that's, that's wild. And if you look back, let's go back five years. I mean, look at this. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, when, when I left, let me see when I left, can I go back that far? Let's go to maximum. Um, so I left in 2011. I left in March of 2011. And I cashed in my stocks around April. So I guess they peaked. I guess it was not as high as I thought. But yeah, about 26.4 they peaked. And then, oh, they went up to 28 there for a while in May. So I don't remember when I cashed mine. I was April or May. But anyway, you know, so you see that. And then there was a dip down. And then it rose all the way to, look at this. Man, 55. It's crazy. In November of 2013. Well, that was a pretty pretty amazing time for them as uh as uh, new consoles were launching, like it's always a good forecast. Then by February, it's crashed down to 35 from 56 to 35. I mean, that's incredible loss. And then it rocks. It does what it does. And then all of a sudden sharply in November of 2015, it's at 30, it's at uh, 45 and it dips down. Oh my goodness. to like 25. I mean, that's crazy. And then it's just down, 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 down. Um, and then this was around the time I think they announced they were trying to sell and then it didn't go through and then <laughs> it went down. Oh, it's brutal. Um, okay. So anyway, that, that's kind of the numbers. GameStop not doing well. Um, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean that, uh, we should all be cheering and jumping for joy? No. Um, in fact, I think anytime we celebrate a company closing, I think that's a bad thing. What we should always hope for is that a company can turn it around and you don't want to see all these employees. I think they have something like 14,000 employees or something. I don't, I don't know. I have to look. I mean, you don't want those many people to lose their job. That's crazy. Um, now here's what's really funny. So some of you may or may not know, I own my own video game store. Uh, I only, I predominantly do used games from all, all gaming areas, but you know, we do carry some new games. GameStop would probably be my biggest competitor in town. And even I don't want them to go out of business. If that tells you anything, 
And because uh, I would argue that GameStop does a really good job of bringing people into stores to get new games. It keeps the, the new physical games in the area. And then those games eventually come to me as used games, which I can resell and make money. And so anytime you're going to take like a big retailer out and just take it out of the market, I think that's a bad thing. Is, is Best Buy and Walmart and Target going to make up for all that GameStop was doing business-wise? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, Amazon can pick up a bunch, but then you're going to start to see more people do digital because they can't go to their favorite game store anymore. And then you're just going to see less and less product in the market. So me, actually, as somebody who owns a game store and who's a competitor with them, I actually don't want to see them go. I think that um, used video game stores, uh, there's a very fragile ecosystem. And, and I think that the the stores like mine, the indie shops, can, can coincide with a GameStop, especially since we carry a lot of stuff they don't. We have a great relationship with our GameStop. You know, I know the owners, not the owners, the, the managers personally. I know a lot of the staff shop at my store. A lot of the staff ask me for jobs all the time <laughs> because they don't like where they're working. But, um, yeah, so I don't want to see them go out, though. Like, we have to, uh, you know, I just feel like, we have to be better uh, than wanting something like that. We don't. We don't want them to fail, and we shouldn't want them to fail. Um, but on the flip side, how do they recover? Now they've been without a permanent CEO for about a year, and that's not good um, because that that creates market uncertainty. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not good for the company because you can have a stand-in guy and be like, well. Let's work on how to make some money and then you make some money and it's fine. But that's not, you know, a permanent CEO needs to have a clear vision of where to take the company. Um, I, I can like I, I, working at GameStop for 11 years. Um, I, I have plenty of ammunition and reasons why we should hate them. And there are some bad company policies. There's some bad employees. There's some incredibly uh, excellent employees too. And so you can't just paint everyone with this broad brush of GameStop sucks. We want GameStop to close. What we should want is GameStop to get better. That's what we should want, not them to close for them to get better. And unfortunately, over the years, as as GameStop bought out its competition, they didn't have they didn't have competition making them better. You know, even Best Buy and Walmart, when they dipped their toe in the water of used games, they didn't do enough to challenge GameStop's business model. And with all the small kind of shops like mine weren't really doing well. In fact, like like a lot of the stores like mine were really music and movie stores that had games, not game stores, you know, and so now thankfully with with collecting kind of coming back as it has over the last 10 years or so like i think it's it's viable to do an all game store like i own uh but yeah it's you know um yeah it's it's something so now stock prices don't mean everything either and and low stock prices don't necessarily mean that uh that that you're toast um the reason i say that is one if it gets low enough somebody could buy a bunch of the stock and make the company private again which I remember when I was there when we were a private company and then the transition to a publicly traded company and I watched things we were doing that made us successful as a private company be changed to appease to stockholders. And I understand you have to do that when you're publicly traded, but sometimes what's doing best for stockholders is not always what's best for the company. Uh, one reason I say that is when, when GameStop bought EB Games, I was there for that transition. EB stock, EB Games stock was worth like triple what GameStop stock was worth, but they were hemorrhaging money. They were not a well-run company. They were, they were doing things to boost stocks, but not to save the company. And so those things aren't mutually, aren't mutually connected. They're not, they're not the same is high stock prices and making money. So, so you have to understand that about just the stock market in general, which I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about. I, I know a little, but I don't dive really, really deep into a lot of this stuff, but these are just the things that I know from my time dealing with it. And so I, I let's not let's not get on the crazy train of, of hoping that uh, GameStop would close. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't want I don't want to see GameStop close, but we want them to be better. And how can they get better? So that's really the question, right? So how do they get better? One, 
they need to uh well they <laughs> Oh my God, this this could be a whole podcast just by itself. One, I think they need to go through and uh, and and really evaluate their 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 stores. Um, they need to be less rigid on co uh, corporate policy and be more customer focused. Uh, part of the problem is they have very strict rules and policies, and if you go there and you don't have a good experience, the employees' hands are often tied and they can't help you. An employee can't, you know, give you some compensation for a game being defective. I mean, not without them having the risk of losing their jobs. And so there needs to be some flexibility. When I was a manager there, I felt like they kept taking responsibility away from us when they should have been empowering me because they always talk to us managers about employing uh, by empowering our employees to do more. But they never empowered me as a store manager to do more. Um, I was a type of person, I was a type of leader that I would take full advantage of everything I could and I would go outside the box to make my store unique. I was a top 1% performing store in the company for years. I, mean, I would say for, for five years at least, I was top 1% to top 10% of the overall company. Many My last few years, I was top 1%. And I don't say that to brag. I say that in the sense that that was me going outside the box to figure out what to do. And And so they need to give their employees leeway. But on the flip side... You need to find employees that will make good decisions. And to do that, you have to pay them better. And you have to guarantee them hours. Um, the, the way that they give them, the way they give these stores hours is so, it's so light that you basically have a full-time manager, a full-time assistant. And then you have what we call a third key or a, a, a game advisor. And those people are key holders. They're managers that are part-time. And you expect them to have full-time availability, but only give them part-time hours. It's an incredibly difficult position to staff. And and then you have you know your normal game advisors. They could be just college kids or whoever's working. But then you still want to upgrade them to management and have them be more responsible, you know. And you're paying them barely above minimum wage, if not minimum wage. And so they need they need to. The the big issue with GameStop corporate has always been that they don't care about things they can't quantify. So, for instance, say you give your store is given 100 hours for payroll, and if they say if you shave off 10 hours of payroll from every store. We'll save a million dollars. And and I don't know if the numbers are right. I'm just saying that's what they would say. But what they can't quantify is if you have three people working instead of two, how many more people could you help? Could you spend more time talking to them and maybe increase the amount of stuff they buy? But you can't quantify that. That's a, that's a what if. And so when you can't quantify something, you can't, you're not supposed to ignore it either. But they ignore anything they can't quantify. And I know, again, just my, my store, when I... When I hired my my latest full-time employee, Dom, it was me and Dave working full-time. And I thought, you know, I don't know if hiring Dom is going to make us any more money. In fact, it's just going to cost me money. A new full-time employee, that's kind of scary, you know, because I don't think he'll make me any more money, but he's going to cost me a lot more money. And the, the truth couldn't be further from that. Um, what ended up happening was we had two people on, so we didn't have people waiting. We didn't have people getting upset and leaving if we couldn't help them because we were in the middle of a big trade-in or something. We were able to help everybody. We were able to answer the phone all the time. We were able to get everything done. And then we were able to get product clean and put out faster, so we didn't have it sitting behind the counter for a week waiting for it to be put out. And the faster we put games out, the faster you sell them. It's, it's easy. It's just like that. And so you can't quantify that, though, so GameStop doesn't care about that. They need to start thinking that way. And then they need to really empower their district leaders, district managers in my day, but district leaders, they need to, uh, they need to empower them to be able to go outside the box as well. They need, to, they need to have some say in things. And I understand there's some things you can't compromise on. You can't compromise on how you lay out the store when it comes to a marketing plan. But every store is shaped differently. So let us get creative with the marketing. As long as we put all the marketing up, let us have some freedom. Give us the decision to make good decisions. 
Um, and I understand why they don't. I went to conference a few times, which is an annual manager's conference. I went to a conference a few times where I saw district managers that I wouldn't have hired as a part-timer. I mean, they were awful and they were getting drunk in the hallway and like they were, they were like hooping and hollering during a meeting. It's like, sit down, shut up. And like, it's just, you're at, you're at work, man. Like be a professional for crying out loud. Like, like I, I mean, and, and that person was technically a position higher than me. So, uh, but anyway, long story short, GameStop is in trouble and they need to pivot. Uh, they're getting out of the cell phone business. I think them getting more into collectibles is what you're going to see because that's the most profitable thing. But one thing I'd really like to see is I'd really like to see them fix some of their pricing issues. They've got a bad reputation right now for not paying enough money for games, right? There's the popular meme out there. It's like, oh, all these games, you see a huge picture. It's like, GameStop will give you $350, you know? And that's that's disingenuous. It's funny. Um, it's not accurate. Oh, look, they're almost up to $10. Um, and, uh, but it's funny, but that's, that's the image they have. And so how do you break that image? You start offering more, but it's not something you can just have a sale and be like, we offer more. And, and I, I hate to go super deep into this, but I want to show you guys stuff like this because there's some, there's some really, um, there's some really wild stuff on here. So let's first, let's look at, cause GameStop, you can go to their website and check out their trick, right? Um, no, there's a 20% bonus towards, uh, towards them. Okay. So let's look up a console. This is, this is my, my, my biggest offender I've seen from them in a while. So this is, let's look up Xbox 360, four gigabyte system. Okay. So a four gigabyte slim system, they aren't super popular. Okay. So a black four gigabyte system, they're paying $8 and 80 cents. Eight. Okay. Okay. I mean, this is ridiculous. Now you could argue that as a company, maybe they have, maybe they're sitting on a million of them, right? Okay. Well, let's see what they're selling them for, because if they're selling them at a reasonable price, they'll sell. Four gigabyte Xbox One system, seventy nine ninety nine. Well, why are you sitting on a pile of them? Because you're trying to sell them for seventy nine ninety nine. So I understand that you don't want to pay much because you probably have a million of these things. Mark these down to thirty nine ninety nine, and they will fly. They will fly. I've got mine at forty nine ninety nine right now, and they move very steadily. And then when they come in, I think we pay like twenty one or twenty five dollars for it. So I understand you can't give away the bank on Xbox three sixties, but for crying out loud, the controller like like an Xbox three sixty controller, right? So just the controller alone, they sell for thirty nine ninety nine. Okay. So they're selling the system. This is where I start to really get upset with, with their trade prices because they could fix this image they have if they were willing to go the extra mile and do this. So an Xbox 360 controller, a wireless official brand controller, they pay almost the same amount for just a controller as they pay for the whole system. And that's really, really crappy because you get the power cord, which the power cords easily sell for $20 by themselves, the console and, and all that stuff. So basically it's better to sell them just a controller. But again, look at the, look at the, look at the rates. You're paying $8 for an item you're selling for 40, eight for 40. I mean, that's, that's 20%. You're paying 20% of value on that. So what we, we sell our controllers for $24.99, which I think is more than fair for a 360 controller. 40 bucks is mental. I won't lie. 40 bucks is mental, which also is interesting because if you have all these systems that you're sitting around on all these Xboxes, why not just sell the controller separately then? But part of their problem is they don't want to go, they don't want to do what they have to do, which is cut their margins on their used stuff. And I know, and I know people are going to say, oh, it's a terrible example. And blah, blah. Okay. Let's look at Red Dead Redemption 2. Red Dead Redemption 2 is a great game came out to uh to huge fanfare they're selling it used for 49.99 okay 50 dollars game 
$50 game. What they're paying for it? $12 for a $50 game. So it's it's not just something they're super overstocked on, okay? I mean, yes, the first like week a game comes out, you're going to get $25 for it. You know, and the Nintendo stuff holds value. Like I think all their Switch games are at, like 23 or 24, so that's good. They're selling for like if you buy something for 25 to sell for 50 or 55, I'm I'm okay with that. Like that's within the bounds I feel of a normal like percentage of what you have to make. And I understand they make no money on new games, so they have to make money on used games. But they're pushing too hard. And what you've done with these trade prices is you've squeezed people out of the market. You're you're, you're squeezing everybody to last drop. You've given yourself a bad rep. Everybody who comes to my store to sell me something has something negative to say about GameStop's trade prices. Almost everybody. And, and that's crazy. I mean, they should have a better image than that. And like, let's just do one more. Let's say, well, what's a hot game that's probably that just recently came out? Like, um, oh, I don't know. Like, let's look at Sekiro, right? Let's look at Sekiro. It just came out for PS4. They're paying sixteen dollars for Sekiro. Okay, I mean, give me a break. They don't even have a used SKU apparently on here for it. So, but they sell it used for fifty four ninety nine. So. I mean, it, it just came out. This is like the hottest game is ever. It's what everybody's talking about right now, and you still can't even manage to to muscle up more than 16 bucks. I mean, on a new game that comes out for us, we're, we sell them for 45 usually, like a new release. So we're undercutting by 10 bucks. We usually pay 25 to $30 for a game that just came out. I, it's crazy to me, man. I mean, you can at least do 20 to $21 on it. I that, But that's that's their image that they've created now. So even on new games... And they need to turn that image around. And and so they've got a bunch of things they have to do. And uh, I, I hope they can do it. Because, again, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, and I'll say this for the final time, we shouldn't be hoping they go out of business. We should be hoping they improve and turn to a better company, much like Best Buy and others have done in the past. Whew, that was a long podcast. Man, that was a lot longer than I thought it would be. <laughs> Let's stretch that out. Um, okay, so let's get to our user question, which is really short because it's a joke question by my buddies at Suggestive Gaming, which if you haven't checked them out, I did that story about how they got their uh, channel video like ripped off and stuff. Um, they're they're killing it, man. I'm so jealous. Uh, they're over 100,000 subs, I think, now, and they're just their videos are just, just dope. They got a Grand Theft Auto one coming out. But uh, so here, <laughs> Josh from Suggestive Gaming says... Hey, Greg, long-time listener, first-time writer. How do you feel about Kate Beckinsale and Pete Davidson making out in public? Oh, boy. Oh, that's a big one. I think uh, Kate Beckinsale, uh, Beckinsale is a very attractive lady. Uh, I think Pete Davidson uh, is a very attractive uh, man. Uh, and I think, aren't they not married to each other or something? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> so basically, I don't give a crap. That's, that's the answer to your question. So what do I think? Uh, I think they should feel guilty. Uh, PDA is gross. I don't think that actually, I, I, I'm actually not a, I don't hate PDA. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'll, uh, I'll grab the woman I love with all my heart and smooch her in public. I don't care. Not embarrassed. Uh, only person I'm trying to impress in my whole life is her. So if, if she's not bothered by it, I'm not going to be bothered by it. You love somebody, grab them and smooch them, baby. As long as they want you to smooch them actually. Otherwise it sounds really creepy. So if, if you love someone and they love you and they're okay with it, then grab them and smooch them. How about that? <laughs> don't, 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 uh, don't, don't do it otherwise. Um, okay. So game of the week, we talked a little bit about this last week with the story, uh, of, of, uh, the Sega Genesis mini, uh, but we're gonna be talking about echo the dolphin. So we're going to go a little more in depth about echo the dolphin. So echo the dolphin was one of two games I bought when I first bought my Sega Genesis. So we bought a Sega Genesis, we bought echo the dolphin, and we bought the original X-Men game for Sega Genesis because that was the a most amazing cartoon on the planet. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, so 
Uh, so anyway, Echo the Dolphin. You literally play as a dolphin. Sounds pretty stupid. I won't lie. Uh, I don't know how this game on paper got made, but the game itself is fantastic. So there's a really interesting dynamic. You obviously are a dolphin. You have to breathe. So you have... Um, you have different moves you can do, like you can swim underwater, you dart back and forth. You can jump out of the water, do like flips, really cool. And then uh, and then you get your uh, air back when you do stuff like that. And then they'll have puzzles like you have to dash and then jump out of the water to jump over like a, like a, a rock barrier to get to a new pool or something like that. But then this game gets like mad creepy like real fast. So all of a sudden you'll be playing somewhere and you get like this um, sonic ability where you can like sonic blast things. And they use it for puzzles and use it to stun enemies and hurt enemies. Um... Uh, and, and the idea is that a mysterious storm came and swept your family away, so you're trying to find your family. And it ends up getting real creepy, like the, you know, spoiler alert, I guess. Um, <laughs> spoilers on 30-year-old games is stupid. But, like, um, like, the final boss is like an alien, and you're way underwater. And as you get deeper and deeper underwater, the game gets darker and darker. And I always felt this sense of dread. And I don't know if you've ever watched a movie where someone's, like, underwater and they have to hold their breath, and then you, like unconsciously are like holding your breath that like is what happened to me while playing this game as a kid and it still scares me a little bit like you start going down and you almost start to feel cold like you know how cold the water gets down there and there's no light and you got to make sure you get back up for air and oh my god like it's just like there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, anxiety that goes along with this so if you get anxious by not being able to breathe underwater like don't play this but it's a cool platformer it's just a totally different idea you're underwater you have to jump out of water um, there's enemies to fight. There's like aliens and stuff. There's a giant. It's it's really cool. If you've never played Echo the Dolphin, you gotta play it. This is this is a staple of the Sega Genesis library. This was a Sega made game exclusive to the Sega uh, family, and it was really good. Like th these were the kind of games that I played, and I was like, this is what's separating the Genesis from the Super Nintendo. You know, it wasn't like Sonic. I was like, Sonic's just Mario, but really fast, and and the level design's really cool. But Echo the Dolphin was unique, and I always felt like Sega was offering a lot more unique experiences as opposed to Nintendo. But again, I didn't have a Super Nintendo. That was just the uh, console war kid in me, uh, you know, <laughs> going back and forth. Uh, but anyway, whew, so that was longer than I thought it would be. But hey, um, I'm going to get out of here then. So you all have a, a great day. Um, if you are listening to this on iTunes, if you want, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We're at YouTube.com slash rate. <laughs> you can subscribe or follow us on Twitch. We're twitch.tv slash the drop rate. And of course, if you like listening to some podcast form and you're hearing this somewhere else, you can go to iTunes or SoundCloud and search for game talk radio. That is my podcast channel. As always, thank you for listening and watching. I do love this. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to relax. Maybe try, well, not relax. I'm going to try to finish Sekiro today. <laughs> so if I can beat that game, then I can relax after I finish it. But, uh, I, I hope to, uh, I hope to hear from you all again. User questions are always welcome, uh, and appreciated. So if you have any, please kick them my way. Uh, you can tweet, uh, tag me in a tweet and, uh, tw uh, Follow me on Twitter at Game Trade Greg. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, again, I always appreciate it. You guys are all great. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Have a good one. Bye bye.